0: Welcome to All About Literacy, a podcast that explores topics and issues all about adolescent literacy. I'm Dr. Deb Van Dynen, an Associate Professor at Hope College in Holland, Michigan.
1: And I'm Dr. Erica Hamilton, an Associate Professor at Grand Valley State University in Grand Rapids, Michigan. We're friends and colleagues in the field of teacher education, and we love to collaborate on research, teaching, and living life well.
0: In this podcast, we'll talk with educators and literacy professionals in the field. We're so glad you've joined us, and we look forward to learning All About Literacy with you.
1: Welcome to All About Literacy. We have invited Raven jones Stanbro and Theda Marie Gibbs-Gray to this podcast episode to speak with us about sociocultural approaches to literacy. Dr. Raven jones Stanbro is an assistant professor in the Department of Teacher Education at Michigan State University. Her teaching, research, and publications focus on literacy, culture, race, equity, and the educational and lived experiences of students of color in urban contexts. Dr. Joan Stambro enjoys watching Veggie Tales with her daughter Zuri Hudson, playing Scrabble and going for walks. Dr. Athena Marie Gibbs-Gray is an Associate Professor of Literacy at Ohio University. She loves reading Black classical authors, inclu- including Zora Neale Hurston, riding her bike, and being in community with her friends and family. She enjoys advocating for educational equity through her research, teaching, and service.
0: Theta and Raven, welcome to the podcast. It is so great to have you here. And Erica and I are just delighted that we get to spend some time with you and we, that we get to learn from and with you. So we'll take turns asking you questions and we'll just take it from there. How does that sound? Sounds good. Thank you, Deb and Erica, for having us. We're delighted to be here.
2: Yes, thank you so much. We appreciate it and consider it an honor.
0: Oh, wonderful. Let's just start off right away with a big one. Can you each tell us a little bit about yourselves and then what sparked your passions for literacy And as we think about your passion for making sure the world knows more about honoring Black girls. and
3: Okay, I'll go ahead. So yes, I am Theta Marie Danielle Gibbs-Gray, daughter of Jerry Gibbs Jr. and Yvonne Gibbs. So that is who I am. And the the list goes on in terms of the, the, the beautiful people, my beautiful grandparents and great grandparents. So that is who I am. And I am because of them. I am a native Detroiter. That is also a central part of my identity and why I decided to become what I consider myself is a literacy advocate. So growing up, books were everywhere in our home, in every corner, in every room, in every backpack, everywhere, and I saw my parents just voracious appetite for learning, for reading the newspaper, Or teaching themselves trades on their own from reading. So because of that, I understood even without them saying anything, the power of literacy. And my mother always teases at a very young age. One of my uh, neighborhood friends on the block was very quiet. And some of our other peers teased him because he didn't talk a lot. And he wasn't uh, reading books when the other kids were reading books so i took it upon myself to become his teacher i gave him our schedule at five years old i gave him our schedule and told him when when we would be reading so all the reading that i knew as my five-year-old self i decided that i was going to teach him everything that i knew and one day his mother came down the street and she was crying. So my mother said, oh my goodness, Theta must have been too harsh with him because we had, a, I was really on it and would encourage him very firmly that he could do it and affirm his identity. And my mother was thinking, oh my goodness, Theta must have been too harsh on him. And his mother said, thank you so much. He is advancing in in preschool. He's speaking more. And it was, for my mother reminding me of that and me remembering my five-year-old self and understanding the power of literacy and to affirm and advocate for other people is really why i'm here there are other stories but that's one of the most powerful for me in terms of why i'm here.
2: can i shout now is that cool peter knows i have a tambourine over here that i would run and run and grab if i had time but thank you so much for that, Theta. Um, hearing that makes me continue to fall in love with you all over again as my writing partner and accountability partner in all things. But my name is Raven Jones Stanbro, Native Detroiter. Um, similar to Theta, I have a lot of lived home experiences with literacy that go back to my mother and father always having music and books around and making me participate in completing newspaper research projects and reports and just sitting down with them. I also have very early memories, as early as four and five, of just sitting with them and looking through the newspaper and doing some decoding. And coupled with that, I am someone who has always been surrounded by good teachers. Like I was able to interpret and know what it was to be a teacher who took up caring ethics and just nurturing lenses to be able to bring out the best in uh, their students and so I'm honored to still be in close contact with each of them stemming from my elementary, all the way up to my high school days and some college instructors and professors also and that way I think I've always been a student of literacy and someone who's been a literacy champion not only for young black girls but just the world at large but namely with young black girls and women and so I'm honored to be here and to continue to do this work with Dita and to learn from how you all are taking it up in your perspective
0: spaces with your students so thank you again here and Raven thank you so much for that and i love i love how both of you spoke to how literacy is embedded in environments Right? It's not in this isolated, just in school classrooms, but it's these in these rich environments at home and in other places. And then it's also so embedded in relationships. I love that part of it. And I think Erica and I try to meet our students where they're at in terms of where they are thinking about literacy when they enter our classrooms. And oftentimes it is thinking about literacy very narrowly defined as reading and writing in school spaces. And so just love how your comments, we haven't even started the interview yet really, and your comments are contributing to this rich notion of literacy within these meaningful relationships in context. You could end the podcast right now, but we'll keep going. Thank you for starting us off so well.
1: So as we think about, as you think about your experiences, not only as students, but then also as professional educators, what are some of the common misconceptions of adolescent literacy that you've encountered? And Raven, maybe if you want to start this time and then Dita, you want to follow up behind, that would be awesome.
2: Okay. So absolutely. Going a little bit further and what Deb just said, she just mentioned that most times people might think of or only see literacy as something related to what you witness in school classrooms, related to reading, writing, speaking, thinking. But again, as Theta and I have both shared already, we knew that we couldn't approach this purpose that we've been ordained with to carry out this work, just in terms of school spaces. It's very much something that we live and breathe. And we recognize that in order for us to be where we are, Some of the misconceptions that we continue to see is for people to only think that literacy among Black and for Black girls and youth is only really centered in school spaces. And so we push back against that a lot. We um, like to share in our collective and individual spaces that literacy is something that happens as soon as we wake up. It's in our daydreaming, it's in our breathing, it's in the recipes that we share that we're learning from our grandmothers um, and our aunties whom we're named after. It's when we're double dutching, jump roping outside. It's the back and forth banter, it's through joking. All, all the ways in which we show up and represent ourselves, literacy is there and it's always been there. And we feel like it's a part of our job to just speak against and push back against those misconceptions and to let people know that we're visible and we're present um, no matter the spaces that we occupy
3: yes all of what raven just said and what out what raven just beautifully said what i'll add on to that is we can see the misconceptions that raven just spoke about even in the types of courses that we offer even in thoughtful teacher education programs so of course Our future teachers, such as the beautiful future teachers who will be listening to this podcast, of course, we need to have um, a strong background in our content area. So, of course, content area literacy is needed, but what would happen if we reframed and retitled those courses to match what Raven just said? So literacy-centered content or identity-centered content area literacy, what might that look like? Because the first word is identity. It's identity centered content area literacy, meaning that we would train and support our teacher candidates in a very different way, letting them know that content and identity are, they're not separated. Even if in title we separate them, in reality, they're actually not separated at all. And another misconception that connects to what Raven just said, is like the the long and wide roots of literacy. We also cannot teach content area literacy without teaching the history of literacy for all of us, regardless of what our identities are, that it doesn't start and stop inside of a book where we're learning vocabulary, like Raven said, phonological awareness and phonemic awareness. We also need to think about the starting and stopping points when we think about what, it, what developmental reading and developmental literacy looks like.
0: This is a great lead into our next question, Theta. And maybe you can start and then we'll have Raven follow. But your work is grounded in sociocultural approaches to literacy. And that has come through already in what you've shared already in our your responses on this podcast. I'm wondering if you, h- how do you describe this framework to outsiders, to people who've never heard of it before? How do you describe it? In, in, in our classes, Erica and I try to be really explicit, to in many ways, contrast it to cognitive and to highlight it that way. But I, I'd love to hear as a fellow educator how do you scaffold your students to an understanding of what's a sociocultural approach to literacy is maybe in contrast to or just how do you provide that rich framework for them and then this, that's a big question in and of itself but if you want to continue it how do you use that framework to advocate for more attention to adolescent literacy and you've already gave, given us a very practical one erica let's rename our courses i'm already jotting that down <laughs> Foregrounding identity. But yeah, so how do you think about sociocultural approaches? How do you unpack those for people not familiar with it? And then how do you use that framework to help advocate more for this richer understanding of adolescent literacy?
3: Yeah, These are amazing questions, Dev and Erica. So I'll start and respond to a piece. And I know that Raven has amazing thoughts about this too. So when I think about the specific framework of sociocultural literacy or sociocultural anything, for me, it sits underneath or attached to an umbrella of humanizing pedagogy. We know that many scholars talk about humanizing literacies, including um, Django Paris, who is both near and dear to Raven and I and, and Erica from us being a part of the same teacher training program and Myesha Wynn as well. Really what humanizing pedagogy helps us to look at is to look at people as whole and full human beings so that we look at our learning and school spaces in the same way. So I see sociocultural literacy as a humanizing literacy that holistically honors all parts of our being. So it says that the way that I learn Elements of reading and writing and literacy is directly attached to my culture, my social environment, my social network, how I'm socialized at home, in the community, through the media, in positive and in challenging ways. So then that means when we're inside the classroom and we take that same framework, that all of these aspects are connecting together and that one is not necessarily separated from the other. So that's one of the ways that I try to break it down into smaller parts. And in terms of helping teacher candidates to advocate for students. So again, if we think about sociocultural literacy is also connected to other frameworks like critical race theory that Raven and I also use Part of that is advocating for counter-narratives and acknowledging that there are always dominant narratives and there are counter-narratives for those of us who are represented, be us uh, women, be us any of our identity, uh, Black women, being from Detroit, that each of us on this call have different narratives and ways in which we are uplifted in society may marginalize us. So for teachers to understand that we need to understand how students are uplifted or not through these narratives and how our classrooms can be sites to transform that. And sociocultural literacy is a way to transform those framings and uplift the positive ones.
2: So in addition to that, thank you, Theta again, like yes, all of, all of that for what we've already encountered and what we're trying to continue to do in this world. but I similarly to what she just said, I always like to approach, on these type of theories as offering up myself as an example and the experiences that I've had as a student coming of age in Detroit public schools and just, again, pushing back against the narrative that is against the city itself at large. Sometimes, which comes and stems from the thinking of the students that I teach in the teacher preparation program, which are largely consisted of young white women who sometimes just are still listening to the stories of their fathers and mothers and their grandfathers and mothers. And sometimes they don't have that context or those experiences to understand that literacy, uh, adolescent literacy um, among and across black and brown spaces doesn't have to be something that they can't. See. It doesn't have to be something that they can't them too, th- themselves affirm as teacher educators. And the courses that I teach, which are largely elementary um, and secondary based literacy courses, we spend a lot of time talking about just my experiences growing up, their experiences growing up, and unlearning a lot of mess that we've both been taught. They aren't the only ones who've learned a lot of mess. I've learned mess too, so has Theda, and we talk about these things often to be able to move from place to place. I also tell my students that it is my responsibility to be my best self in front of them because I don't want to teach them something that I wouldn't want them to teach my daughter. And we are all mothers or other mothers in some kind of regard, whether we mentor other young people in our family. And so we know that we only want the very best in front of them. And so I don't play to to BS or anything related to that when it comes to teaching and allowing students who don't even look like me to understand that they too have a responsibility. And if they aren't gonna be serious about the cause, and sustaining pedagogies to to help in that way, to foster those types of ideologies and understandings so that our teacher educators always understand that there are voices that they may not have tapped into yet that will help them along their teaching journey.
1: just want to make sure I don't miss the part that you you were saying about if they're not ready to take up or to live into their calling. Could you say a little bit more about that?
2: Absolutely. Yeah. What I was saying is that I, I always tell the students uh, that I teach across the semesters and the classes when they're in front of me, this is serious business. And if you're in this profession, you have to be serious about it because I wouldn't to share some things with them or not be able to share things with them if they were themselves going to be the teachers teaching my own. Child. And because we all have experiences being mothers or other mothers across contexts, we recognize the the necessity and the importance of what it means to have good nurturing and practical teachers who are responsive to culturally relevant thinking or culturally sustaining pedagogies and humanizing practices to be able to make those personal connections and build those relationships with their students. You can't ask a student to write anything for you or to read Corally, orally, and tandem with you if you don't have a relationship with them. And so that is something that I'm very serious about, and I would like to see that continue in my fostering with uh, teacher education at large.
1: So I'm going to circle back, Raven and Antita. One, the idea that relationships matter, <clears throat> excuse me, is, I think it's core both to how Deb and I have talked about and thought about and in in the work that we do and I knowing all four of us myself included that relationships are at the core of teaching good teaching requires um, healthy whole relationships and I just want to circle back to the part that you noted earlier I've been taking notes fast and furious I feel like I'm at church and I love that you are taking me to church like seriously that just makes me so happy Um, Yeah, it's hard to express my enthusiasm for what you're sharing and for just the agreement in a Zoom (laughs) when I have to keep myself muted so that you can talk because I want to hear what you have to say. But the idea of the humanizing pedagogies and we can't, right, that's human. We are humans and we need to be in relationship with one another. Um, We need to see each other for who we are and for who we can be and who we will be, not for narratives that have been created by other people that somehow put us in a box. And that just, you know, that really, that can be very damaging as we know historically, but it also can be problematic for teachers working with students if they keep them in those boxes, at least conceptually. So I really appreciate that. Deb, you wanna ask that next question connected to the article?
0: So you've published, We Are Hashtag Black Girls Magic, exploring the multiple literacies black girls use for storytelling in the Michigan Reading Journal in 2019. I always, students will read this article and not know backstories that went into it. And those of us who are researchers know there's always backstories uh, that don't make it into the article or that contributed to the article in ways that sort of aren't represented in the article. Because the article is often the final product. And as we think about ri- our writing lives and drafting and layering and stuff like that, one of my favorite questions to ask researchers is just some of these backstories. And I'm um, just wondering what were some of the aha moments as you worked on analyzing the data or collecting the data on this project and I know it's 2019 which means you did all the work even earlier than that but if you can think back to your work on that project what were some of those aha moments for you along the way perhaps they get mentioned in the article perhaps not but if you could reflect a little bit about that if you would be willing and then maybe also what didn't make it into the article that you would want people your readers beginning teachers to know about do you want to start Sure. Okay. Um, So I'll start with, so a couple of things that we did
3: mention. We did mention that this article actually came out of not just our research, but we were prompted to do it because of our amazing audience at the Michigan Reading Association Conference in Detroit. And what was so awesome about that is sometimes we have repeat attendees who will look our names up and say, hey, we were waiting to to see you all because we know that it will be interactive, that you won't be talking at us. But they're beautiful Detroit educators who are many of whom are doing this work and want to be in community to talk about this work. So we are thankful for them. And part of our article started off with, we were doing an activity with what are the dominant conceptions about Black girls and their literacies. And we included that in the article. One thing that we did not say is what was really beautiful is that our family members held space for us. So our husbands participating in that session, my mother being present in that session, that Raven and I continue to have examples where our family members say, can I actually come to the conference to see you? And then they talk with us and then then they communicate and they analyze what we said and they think about, oh, okay, so when you do this again, you should do this and you should say that. Big shout out to them. That didn't necessarily fully come through, but a shout out to just our family who holds us to do our work and who were there and present with us for the beginning of this article. And we're also aha moments. We were really thankful when we were analyzing the data, we did not quite know. We knew that we would use a critical framework, a critical and race based literacy framework. We didn't know that it would be Black girls' literacy. So, our aha moment is also a shout out to Goldie Muhammad, to Deetra Price Dennis, who have been engaging in this work too. And we're always intentional. So, that's one thing. We're intentional. Intentional about making sure that we connect to the amazing scholars who are already uplifting Black women. So it was one Black women and girls. So it was wonderful for us to be able to connect to the framework that, that they created.
2: Absolutely. I, I'll just add, in terms of some things that often get left out, is that I, I, I believe that Theta and I have a beautiful process by which we take up the work when we meet. Sometimes it's at a coffee shop here in Detroit. Like anytime she now comes home from Ohio, it's a personal holiday for me. Oh, I know I'm about to eat good. If I go to her mama's house, she gonna cook for me. There gonna be something there that I can enjoy. I'm gonna feel the breeze. I'm gonna be able to look in Theta's backyard or Theta's mother's backyard, Miss Yvonne, and see all those beautiful plants and the landscaping like that leads into our self-care practices and what makes us thrive when we write and think. And so I never want to um, just forget those particular lenses that we draw upon when we do come together and how we're both still learning and relearning our city. So we're able to travel together, whether it's at conferences and represent Detroit together in larger spaces in which sometimes affirm or do not affirm where we're from. Not only logistically by way of being from Detroit, but again, as just being young, junior Black scholars who depend on who you ask, the narrative should have been different for us. But because there's this such thing as the counter narrative, we are here to, and so I honor those practices and just being able to know that when we are analyzing data and when we're looking across our just interpretations of things, we continue to learn from those young girls. We continue to learn from Lena and Crane and their own storytelling practices and the ways in which they were engaging with school and literacy and academia and being at home and already being brilliant in their own ways. And I always say to anybody, you get yourself around a young person, you will always be wise. You will always be wise. And I know that a lot of people think that, oh, the older you are, the wiser you get. But I plan to be wise because I plan to always be around some young folks who just have a different type of energy to bring to the context to help us to teach them and to see them for who they are. And it is our responsibility to meet them where they are and for us to come up together, again, in the name of literacy, in the name of humanizing practices and education. And it's always Theda and I, it's always our responsibility to make sure we're celebrating young Black girls and Black women just across the nation, if you will. And across the diaspora because we know where we come from.
1: So that leads me to thinking more about this idea of storytelling and thinking about, so not only the storytelling for these young women um, whose stories they were able to tell you, who then you were able to tell others. So how can teachers, so a two part question, how can teachers use storytelling across content areas to support adolescents' multiple literacies? And then as you think about that, what advice do you have for beginning teachers, especially when you th- they think about storytelling? I mean, what that might, how they might use it in their classrooms. Maybe
3: Theda, you wanna go first? Sure, so I'll just say to, for us to remember that all of our students have beautiful, perhaps they may be complicated, but that we all have stories to tell regardless of our identities and that there can be connections made in those stories and that we can think very differently in terms of the way that we tell stories. So to think about the types of projects that we might implement inside the classroom. So how do we trace our family history and family literacy that gets even more complicated with communities of color and communities that have been marginalized but it's important to know that. So Raven and I have been digging more with our personal stories and understanding more about parents' literacy stories, our grandparents' literacy stories and how that shaped us. Now we do understand some parts of our narrative, we feel like they're too special or too personal to share in writing in personal ways and we replenish and heal with each other. But for teachers to figure out how they can remind their students that they all have powerful stories to tell because sometimes some of our students feel like they don't or they may be ashamed of their story. So to know that they can use writing and they can use engaging with reading in in, in ways to talk about things that are important to them. So I would just encourage future teachers to, to always affirm and remind students that they have and will always have powerful stories to tell through writing, through oral communication, through whatever ways they choose.
2: And I'll just add that since being in this pandemic, I'm seeing a lot of youth advocate more for themselves on social media. And so the idea of Instagram stories and TikTok, I, I don't think that teachers should always push back against that, but Find ways to invite that space and that medium into the classroom to allow students to tell their stories or to demonstrate ways in which they're engaging in multiple literacies across technology spaces. And sometimes I don't think that young folks are affirmed in that way because we're always telling them, put your phones away, don't do this, don't do that. And I get it, but I feel like there can be a happy medium for us to... Utilize what students are becoming more brilliant at day by day related to what they're interested in and bringing that to the forefront or centering that those parts of their identities. I also re- remember Theta and I talking a lot about a fellowship that we were both able to receive through our doctoral program when I, we traveled to Botswana, but at different Di- through at different uh, times, different years. And so being able for us to go back to the motherland where we originate from and to see those salient practices be originated there and to bring that back to our spaces and to make those uh, cultural and space connections is something that we are very serious about. I'm currently watching something on Netflix called something about the hog. High, high, was it high, high, high on the hog or something like that? And it's just Taking me back to my time being in Botswana and Tanzania and understanding that many things tell a story. We're represented, our literacy practices are represented across different mediums, whether it's in the food that we eat, the clothes and the garbs that we wear, the markets that we decide to participate in, to buy certain things that are going to affirm our families and to sustain them across a week, the food preparation that we do. Our students need to learn about all of these things and not just the students, but the teachers need to learn from the students, how they see these things being played out in their lives. And so I try to do a lot of practical things, even as a college instructor, even as a teacher educator, but helping students to see that their lessons and their lesson plans, even if it's a mathematical lesson, you can change the names in your story problem to make it more relatable to who's represented in your classroom, and let that be a lens into how your students feel affirmed and seen. And the math centers that you create, what types of um, activities are being displayed in those math centers? Do they represent the names of Black mathematicians or Brown mathematicians that have already contributed so much to this earth? And so those are just some some practical and way, practical ways that I try to show up
0: when I'm teaching about uh, these very things and themes. I love from both of your comments thinking about teachers as storytellers, as we think within our different on the secondary level, in particular, and storytellers within our content areas. But then eliciting our students' stories and making sure the stories we tell are uh, reflective of our students' identities, as well as Raven, your point about learning from. Our students and the stories they tell and the genres they use and how we position ourselves as learners in that regard learners of their stories and how their form and content transitioning to our next question for both of you some of your research comes out of your advocacy for and love for Detroit Michigan and we've talked about that in various moments throughout this podcast what do you want people to know about this part of the world and Raven let's start with you this time
2: you know what, it's so funny because Theda and I, we thought a little bit about this. And so we, we came up with, we both came up with one sentence, one sentence that we would say related to this question. And Theta's part is the subject and mine is the predicate. So I'm gonna tune in and go first. <laughs> there, thank you, Reverend. There are so many things that we could say,
3: but what we will say right now is that beautiful people and
2: things come out of Detroit and they always have? Yes. And then my part is that, and we ain't going nowhere. We've always been here. If you can't find us, look again. Nine, out of t- nine times out of 10, your mama or your mama's mama or your auntie or somebody knows somebody from Detroit who is doing some good work and who's doing some good cooking and all the things. And so we just want to be reminders of those untold stories. There are a lot of youth activism happening here. Uh, I see it through my advisory role at the Museum of Contemporary Art here in Detroit where it's very, there's a a, just a robust community of young scholars across grade levels who are concerned about creativity and thinking in the city and bringing in certain speakers and just audiences to pay attention to how young people are uh, just fueling their own creativity. We're here to just be constant reminders to our daughters, our cousins, our family members. And we're also here to give our mothers and everyone else their flowers while they're still alive and to continue to recognize the ancestors that we have lovingly emerged from and to continue to speak their names.
3: Yes, and I'll add to this. Raven is making me think about this to connect it back that all of these stories span across content areas, right? So there's so much rich history in Detroit. Detroit. So learning about the Black hospitals like Dunbar Hospital that were in the city. So learning about the contemporary Black muralists, many of which Raven is in close relationship with, that there are these beautiful murals around Detroit that tell stories about the Black Bottom and Paradise Valley. So that's social studies right there. That's science. That's analyzing economics in terms of learning about the specific divides that are still there. You can still see some of the divisions or learning more about historically how freeways like I-75 were built in the middle of Black communities and destroying any of those communities that attempted to continue to survive and thrive. So those are very natural ways, right, and powerful stories to tell about Detroit. And there's so many more. Those are just small snapshots. So part of that is, is being as teachers to make sure that you dig, that we dig deeply and we don't just accept what's in a textbook. We know that it requires a tremendous amount of work. So we're not saying that this is easy because it, it does take a toll on us when we're doing all the things that all amazing teachers do and we're finding new content. But Raven mentioned this when we were talking is to make sure that they find community and can help them to be connected, to make sure and to, to be accountable and to stretch each other because we are that for each other. We don't always have the answers. But we stretch each other. We help each other to replenish when it feels like the work can be too much. So having that community is really important too and realizing that we exist in Detroit.
1: So I love that one. I love that you love Detroit, but I, this idea of place and this, this concept of what does it mean to be a teacher in a place or to reside in a place? And so I think not only... One, I'm in a, I'm a homegrown Michigander, right? I grew up on the West side, but Michigan, that is where my heart is. And it's a a state that I love a lot and it it has a lot of rich history, but I think for teachers, wherever they teach to be students of the places where they teach and the communities where they teach, not only current, but past who's been here, who is here, who will be here. I really appreciate that because that helps them to be students, as Deb said earlier too, of their students and to be able to cultivate those stories. And I think that circles brings us full circle about the concept of storytelling and the power of storytelling. Not only the stories that we tell ourselves or about ourselves, but the stories that we tell about our places, our people, our family, our friends, our sisters from other misters and our brothers from other mothers. And you know, that it's not, there's just a lot of There's just a lot of beauty in the stories that we get to tell. And so we are so grateful um, that you've had, that gave us the opportunity to uh, answer some questions. We have one last fun question for both of you, which you don't know what it is. You can't see in the podcast, but I can see Raven and and Theta's smiles. And so if you're ready, I'm going to ask. And then Theta, if you're willing to go first and then Raven, if you'll follow up. So a tradition at the end of each episode is to ask the guests a fun question. In our literacy courses, we talk about the importance of acknowledging, affirming, and drawing on students' out-of-school literacy practices. So those hobbies, those sports, the cultural things we participate in, religious experiences, or the ethnic groups, or anything else. What, w- what, for each of you, is one out-of-school literacy practice that you enjoy? So not hard, but not necessarily something we might not know about you. So. You know, what for you, what's one out-of-school literacy practice that you enjoy?
3: Oh, okay. This is, so it's been a long time, Raven, Raven and I. It's been well overdue. But we've tried our hand at improvisational rep. It's been a really long time. So we're overdue this summer for a tag team improvisational rep. It brings me great joy. It's tough for me to improv, like, Improvisational literacy experiences are really difficult, but I love them because they activate my brain in a really different way. And um, to do that with any form of singing, rapping and writing is, is really challenging. So I'm happy to get back into that. And a second one that I have started to do, I've started to, to get more into writing morning haiku. So Sonia Sanchez is an amazing Black woman writer who has inspired me. And most recently, when I started digging, doing the digging that I was saying that pre-service teachers and teachers should do, I started learning more about her story. Haikus are tough too, right? It is tough to figure out a substantive haiku. So one that I wrote um, last summer, and I'm getting back into it, This summer was, the haiku goes this way. This load weighs too much. As I curiously dig, I find treasure myself. So it's really like an identity exploratory haiku. So I'm enjoying doing more of that and look forward to what comes out of this summer.
2: Oh, buddy. Oh my goodness. Okay, so yes, um, we both love to write and sometimes we don't share all the time, what we're doing. And so to be able to hear that, it just makes me so happy because sometimes we do need to say we need to replenish and sort of log off of Zoom to get back to the things that make us happy. And so I try my hand at writing too. And sometimes when I'm not feeling too vulnerable, I might share it with someone. And I shared with Theta that I entered this contest earlier this pandemic and received the second place award for it and so it's through the Martha's Vineyard Institute of Creative Writing and I'm so happy that it's coming up this week although it's going to be virtual this year I'm still not allowing that to stop me Ooh. from going to a space and so my daughter and I are going to go um, on vacation in the next coming uh, week for nine days so I can enjoy the conference and she can go to the beach and we can just have a good time so I'm happy like Theta, to get back to the writing, and just to practice those things that brought us joy before we entered academia, right? Because sometimes academia can not be that kind to us and for different reasons and in different ways. So happy to write. And Theta also has me doing lots of yoga and warrior poses to remind me that I am a treasure also. So happy to just learn so much again from each other. And you all might not know this. I When I first saw Theda, and she knows this story, and I love to tell this story all the time, that when I first saw her, I knew she was going to be my friend. And we are approaching our 10-year anniversary of sisterhood later this August. She served on the doctoral panel during my orientation, Erica and Deb. And I just remember seeing her beautiful face and just... Feeling like I wasn't alone, even though I was the only Black woman in, in my cohort in 2011 and the other only Black person in the cohort period. So just happy to continue to do this work and to learn from each other and to know that our lives will continue to intersect because we ain't going nowhere.
0: And I love how joy and laughter And just good times is like so infused in how you talk about each other. It's a beautiful friendship from what we can just hear and the way you two connect with each other and interact. And Raven, thank you so much for joining us for today's episode. For those of you listening in, thanks for joining us as well. Be sure to follow All About Literacy on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss any upcoming episodes. We are Deb Van Dynen and Erica Hamilton, and we wish you beautiful adventures ahead as we all keep learning all about literacy.